welcome to Footnotes, a podcast by Sulls, sponsored by Gilbert and Tobin. I'm Alana. And I'm Vivian. Today, we're chatting to Bryce Craig, Lauren Ziegler, and Christy Barton from Gilbert and Tobin. We sat down with them to get insight into the future of the legal profession, tips for the clerkship and recruitment process, and what GNT is doing in the legal tech and innovation space. Alrighty. Hi, everyone. So thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to speak with us. The first thing that we'll start with is for everyone to introduce themselves and maybe talk a little bit about their career pathway to Gilbert and Tobin. So maybe if we want to start with you, Bryce, and then Lauren. Yeah, sure. Hi. So I am currently a lawyer in our technology and digital team. In most of the firms, that's their TMT group, technology, telco and media. And I came to GNT through the, the clerkship process uh, a few years ago and had a few rotations in TMD and banking. And as a grad, I rotated in our innovation group where Lauren currently works. And then I had my final rotation in technology and digital. So my name's Lauren. Uh, I work in our Perth office and I joined Gilbert and Tobin in 2018 as a graduate in our legal program. Similar to Bryce, I also completed a clerkship at Gilbert and Tobin. In Perth, it's slightly different. You do like four or five clerkships at lots of different firms and, and, they're, and they're a bit shorter. Um, so Gilbert and Tobin was one of my clerkships. And then I joined, yeah, as a grad in 2018. And as graduates, we do three six-month rotations in Perth. And I was fortunate enough to be able to do one of my rotations as a graduate in our legal services innovation team alongside Bryce. When I returned to Perth, I worked in as a lawyer in our corporate advisory team. And I also worked in our legal transformation team. So I was doing a split role. But as of 1 July, so very recently, I have moved full time into our legal transformation team. So I think my new title is legal transformation lawyer. So I'm still a, a lawyer, you could say, um, but working in the legal transformation space. Um, hi everyone, I'm Christy. I work out of the Sydney office for Gilwin and Tobin. I've been with GNT for about six and a half years now, um, and I manage our entry level programs. So for us, that's summer clerks, graduates, paralegals, and our Indigenous cadet program. Um, and I work in what's a sub team called our talent team. So um, we also manage the career social media accounts and various employer branding projects. So Bryce and Lauren, it sounds like you've had exposure to some interesting teams. Do you have any career highlights or matters you've worked on that you'd like to share with us? So I guess my career highlight is probably what I've already mentioned, being able to do a rotation in our Sydney office. As a grad in Perth, that's pretty, it's a pretty unique opportunity to be able to go interstate to do one of your rotations as a graduate. And I think I was very fortunate because I had just reached out to a few people in Perth and let them know that this was a space that I was really interested in, something I was very passionate about, and was there potential for me to explore this further in Sydney. Bryce and myself were some of the first grads to do this rotation so it was kind of like a novel idea and we hadn't had anyone from Perth go over before to work in this team and so I was fortunate enough to be able to go over there for between three to four months in the end and work in that team which was a lot of fun and I learned a lot and so that was one definitely one of my career highlights because without that opportunity so early on in my career I definitely wouldn't be able to be working full-time in a legal transformation role at this still quite early stage of my career. Over to you, Bryce. I feel like for me, it's quite similar. So it's more about the career opportunity. I was really thankful to have a grad program where I had one legal rotation that I was very interested in because I've always been inter- interested in um, technology law. 
but then also have this non-traditional legal service innovation rotation that exposed me to another side of what our business does and, and where this, the sector at large is heading. And so it was really interesting to be able to join that team at a time where a lot of new initiatives were starting up. We just started, um, started getting into sort of ancillary legal consulting, which we're, we're still doing now, and that's, and that's growing to be much bigger. And uh, it was a really exciting time to join that team. But overall, my highlight was just having a, a grad program where I could do those two things, the, the traditional legal that I liked and that I've now settled into, as well as this alternative legal that's becoming more and more relevant. Thank you so much. Kind of on the flip side of that, what has been your most challenging experience to date in your legal career or what did you find the most sort of challenging when you started out? I found something challenging with the first rotation. So that was with um, legal service innovation and it was challenging in the respect that we get very used to like as lawyers quantifying our our time and our performance on a on like a build basis and then in this team we weren't billing in the same way we weren't measuring performance in the same way and so because the metrics had had shifted a bit i think that was initially something that i found challenging you couldn't finish a day and go okay yeah i built six hours it was much more freeform and it would change by the day by the week it was just an adjustment, but it was definitely challenging, especially as a, uh, as a junior resource, you want to be showing that you're contributing and just finding different ways to do that in a non-build team is yeah, a bit challenging at first. I would say one of the biggest challenging um, things for me would be one of the adjustments of coming out of law school and going into work. So in, in law school, like a lot of your exams and assessments are based around like the problem question type scenarios and um, that are reflective of what lawyers do in law firms. But especially as, as a junior or a graduate, a lot of your work is quite different and it's not really what exactly you've been taught to do at, at law school. And I think that that's a, a common thread that, you know, um, people discuss this quite more frequently now, that disconnect between what we're taught at law school and what the reality of the profession is really like. And I'm not saying it's necessarily the role of universities to equip law students for everything they're going to expect in the workplace, because that's just not feasible. But I think that that was a challenge because you come out of law school and you're like, oh, I have all this legal knowledge and I'm really good at doing problem questions. And then you come into the, the workforce and a law firm and the tasks that you're asked to do don't really reflect perhaps the experience you've had at law school. And perhaps like touching on Bryce's point earlier, it's like you want to feel valuable and you want to feel like that you're adding adding value to the work that you're doing and the team that you're working in. And it can be really hard as a junior, especially when a lot of the tasks you're asked to do are perhaps a little bit more administrative or a little bit more um, rudimentary or basic. But it's I think it's really important for juniors to realise that those are the types of tasks that really teach you like the basics of, of the process the media and movies and TV give you this perception that you're going to like solve the case or like you're going to find the case law that like cracks it wide open for everyone. And you might not do that on your first day or your first year or your first 10 years. But the things that you're doing and the work, like the tasks that you've been asked to do are still adding value and contributing to, to the greater whole. So I think it was the challenge of finding out where you sit in that greater piece of the puzzle. I think that was really hard. That's really interesting. One thing I was wondering, is there, um, is there something that you learned at law school that you never thought you'd use that's become surprisingly relevant to what you have to do on a day-to-day basis? The biggest thing that law school teaches you is how to think. You don't realise that you've been taught how to think a certain way until you come into the workforce and you're like, someone gives you a problem 
you know, they're like, oh, can you please uh, let me know what this piece of legislation means? And you're like, okay, great. I know that that means I look at the act. I make sure that it's the most current version of the act. Then I check the definition section that refers to the regulations. I go to the regulations. I check that definition section. And you do this whole loop to work out what that means. And then if they'd given that task to someone who hadn't gone to law school, they probably wouldn't know where to start. And so I think that's a very basic example, but it's like you realise that you've been taught to think and approach problem solving in this certain way. And it's not that you come out with this innate all-encompassing knowledge of the Corporations Act, but you know how to start solving a problem. I, yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's just, it's, it's learning how to, how to think and how to solve problems. And if you, if, if you need a particular resource, who to ask or where to look around, I think more than anything, if I had to answer like about a subject, I would just say contracts and advanced contracts is, is a pretty safe bet, at least in the work I do. Cause um, that's actually so yeah. true. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of contracts. I would testify to that. Is that a Sorry. little legal pun, Lauren? <laughs> I know I realized when I said it no but I feel like contracts when you learn basic contracts law you're like this is so like basic and boring I will never yeah. need to use this and then you realize the most basic things is like you'll be reviewing an agreement and you're like oh the execution clause is wrong and it's yeah. like no one else picked it up because it's like such a minor thing and it kind of gets back goes back and forth between all the parties and then it suddenly gets to signing and you're like oh actually I remember like contracts 101 this is actually a deed it needs a different execution clause so basic stuff like that another thing I was wondering I know a lot of the buzzwords that we hear around clerkship time is the culture Um, so how would you describe the culture at Gilbert and Tobin? It just feels very natural. Like I, I've never really had to think about it too much. I got a feeling for what G&G's culture was when I was applying. And in the end, that became a pretty core determinant to where I ended up and why I wanted to choose G&T. We don't have a lot of hard and fast rules and unnecessary red tape in our organization. And so on a day-to-day level, that might not come to be particularly relevant. But then if you wanted to get something off the ground, if you wanted to put an idea forward, try a new initiative, it's very easy to do that. It's just friendly and, and normal. And there's no presenteeism that you sometimes hear about in, in, in law firms. It's lateral. There's another buzzword. Like I have no sort of qualms about speaking to someone at my level or all the way up to like Denny Gilbert. Like giving Denny Gilbert a call would not be the weirdest thing in our organisation. Far from it, really. That's a good answer, Bryce. I remember doing, like, because, like I said, in Perth, you do, like, a a lot of different clerkships at different firms, um, and a lot of the firms, culture is, like, a big buzzword, and everyone's like, oh, like, our culture here is blah, 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 and it was all, like, if you fit in with this culture, then you will fit in here, and I remember thinking at the outset, I was like, oh, that's so great, they've got this really defined culture, they know exactly what it is. And then I remember coming to Gilbert and Tobin and it was almost the the opposite where it was Mm. like the culture isn't a defined thing. It's like there's a position for everyone here. And I can see benefits to to both. But what I really struggled with was when your culture is so defined by set parameters and it, it kind of almost has a negative effect where you miss out on people because they don't fit in that cookie cutter mold. And I've, I've seen it happen where people will say like, if, if you don't fit in here, then you're just not aligned with our culture. But I'm like, but you're missing out on great talent. And I think that's a good thing about Gilbert and Tobin is that it's not clicky in that way. Like there is literally space for everyone. Great. Um, and kind of like leading on from that, um, what initiatives does GNT currently have in place to promote diversity and inclusion? Maybe Christy, you can help us answer this one. I think this is something GNT in some areas does really well in, and in other areas, it's probably a bit of a work in progress for us. 
diversity initiatives aren't just about gender, but that has been a big part of, I think, our brand for some time. We've been known as being a really inclusive workplace for women and strong promoters of women and a lot of that has very much just been an ethos passed down from Danny Gilbert to the rest of the partners. Promotion and hiring is based on merit and it's about having the right people in the right jobs as opposed to, I guess, there being any sort of targets. We're shifting away a little bit from that now um, and a little while ago we announced 40% of our partnership women by um, 2023. So we are putting a little bit more structure and policy in place around that, which is not very G&T-like, um, as the others would attest to. So that's a big thing for us, um, and we've been known as an equal opportunity employer for a number of years running, um, and really good brand in that space. Um, and there are other initiatives we have around things such as disability and accessibility. We have things in the LGBTIQ space, I think you name it, there's an opportunity, a bit like what Laura was saying. GNT culturally is a place where there is a place for or a spot for everyone. And so it's very encouraging of people to um, either get involved with existing initiatives or if they see an opportunity to launch a new group, a new opportunity or program, then they're encouraged to do that. And so that's where things like our outgroup have come about, um, which supports our LGBTIQ initiatives. And it's for people who identify in that space as well as their allies. Has a huge following in the firm. We now have a firm-wide diversity council which reports into our board and looks at a number of things, not just gender, but flexibility, mental wellbeing, accessibility and those sorts of things as well. Fantastic. I was wondering if you guys had any tips or tricks for clerkship applications and interviews, having gone through the process yourself and then Christy being on the other side of that, what advice you might give? I would say, and I feel like Christy would agree because I know that it's it's something that you always look for, but like you hear a lot about the importance of having a strong personal brand. And I won't say that that's not important, but I think it's also very important to show your interest in the firm you're applying for, as well as a willingness and eagerness to learn, to contribute, to grow. I think a keen clerk is the best clerk. I totally agree with what Bryce said. Yeah, do your research about the firm you're applying for. You know, like don't go to a firm and be like, oh, I'd really love to work in this practice and then the firm doesn't have that practice. But also what Bryce said about personal brand, having, so you're having a genuine interest in the firm and the work that you're doing, but also having genuine interests outside of that as well. I think don't be afraid to bring that to the table when you're having your interview mm. and meeting people. Like obviously you want to be um, talking about the law and the work that you're doing because that's the role you're interviewing for. But I know a lot of my peers and stories I hear is if you can just make a personal connection with the person you're talking to, that kind of goes further than you guys both discussing an element of case law perhaps. So, you know, don't be afraid to talk about the fact that you love running marathons or that you're really into horse riding. Obviously, you want to like use your judgment about when to raise those things, but don't feel like you have to be this cookie cutter person who's just like, I love the law. I don't love anything but the law. I can't wait to work all the time. Having some real genuine interests goes a long way. Mm. Because because I think the um, the interviewers on the other side only buy that to a certain extent. You know, like, if you're just talking about your studies and you know your favorite case, I don't know. Like it's just it's just not it's just not real. And it's yeah, I think it's sort of see through that. So don't shy away from putting yourself forward in, in your applications and in your interviews. And I think 
some of the best conversations that I've had in, in interviews and that I've heard from my peers have just been on the most random topics, whether that be someone's hobbies or just like things happening out in the world, just novel, novel conversations. Yeah. Absolutely. I agree with everything um, that Bryce and Lauren have said and probably the top takeaways for me on that in terms of applications, absolutely do your research and tailor your application to the firm that you're applying for. Um, we still see a lot of really generic applications and it's such a shame because the CVs could be amazing, but um, there might be very little in there around why someone's actually applying to GNT and what it is that interests them. Trying to find exactly what it is about each firm that really resonates with you um, you know, showing your interest and the research that you've done on a firm is not necessarily, for example, doing a cut and paste of the deal and awards section on the website and just sort of weaving that into the cover letter. It's really reflecting on why would I be excited to go and work for this firm, you know, and it could be a whole range of things, a practice group that you're really keen on, uh, it could be someone you've connected with at an event, um, someone you'd love to work with, whatever it might be. But I think if you sit down at the outset and you get really clear for yourself on what it is about those firms that really excites you and you find a way to put that into your application, you will definitely get further in the process than someone who perhaps doesn't do that. And then the other piece around sharing yourself and being, you know, really genuine. The guys have talked about there sort of not being this mould or cookie cutter G&T person and I think that's absolutely true and more and more people want to see what else do you bring what else do you have to offer besides you know having great marks um, or you know a solid academic record and some work experience whatever that might be but what are your interests outside work and study they don't have to all be related to the law um, and I'm with Bryce you know that can be a little boring we want to know what do you get up to um, you know with your friends and family and and other extracurriculars and that will also lend to a more genuine um, interaction that you have with us. Obviously the clerkship process is very competitive um, so what advice would you have for people who maybe aren't successful for clerkships this year? Clerkship isn't the be-all end-all and I think there's this huge amount of pressure on clerkships and I know it's a lot easier for me to say that on the other side of the table. Um, I think this year in particular will be really interesting to see what happens and I've heard all sorts of mixed anecdotal feedback about whether people are thinking of applying or not. It's probably, I guess, maybe the fastest or the most linear pathway into a great program. I acknowledge that, but it's definitely not the be all end all. And I think a huge bit of value in this crazy process, I mean, the recruitment process is significantly longer than the actual clerkship program, which is just crazy. But such a unique opportunity people have to connect with all of these firms at this time to meet and engage and interact with different lawyers, partners, HR teams, and to really start building their networks, you know, and really start identifying people that they would like to have as mentors or contacts down the track. That is hugely invaluable, whether you get to the end and you have a clerkship or not. And if people can try and keep that in mind and remove a little bit of the pressure of the attachment to the outcome, and sort of enjoy the process for what it is, for those connections you'll make and the experience you'll have getting to better understand yourself and your interests um, and seeing what else is out there, then I think they'll have a better experience. I totally agree with all of that. And just because you don't start your career somewhere doesn't mean you will never work there. 
And um, I think uh, touching on what Chrissy said earlier, the networks you make along the way, it can be really valuable and you may not get a clerkship there at that point in time, but you may find yourself at that firm in five, eight or ten years' time and those connections that you made at that clerkship experience, those people could still work there and then you come in with that relationship already formed or those people could help you get a job there in the future. You know, it might just not work out at that point in time for you to get a clerkship there, but that doesn't mean that you will never, ever work at that firm. And, yeah, you should always treat those connections with value because they're very valuable. My answer to that question would have to depend on how particular applicants see their career going forward. And so if you were trying to, like, just get a feel for what corporate law is like and then you missed out on the clerkship, then endless other opportunities in the in the sector and then surrounding sectors that you can get into but then if if you were like no like gnt or this other firm is like the only person want to start my career then think about other other ways to get in there as well um, in terms of junior uh, resources i know a lot of people have come into our firm through our gt docs team and document review and stuff like that and that's like another way people are coming in and it's not necessarily a set pathway but if, if if you're if you're keen to work for a certain place and you're and you know that, then just look for the other areas of the firm that you can that you can join or get a part of. Um. So, in what ways have you guys been involved with pro bono work as well? Uh, the main way that I've been involved is through our. Um, so we, we, we do work for RACS and the Asylum Seeker Centre. Um, we have like a roster of, of lawyers who help out refugee applicants during their uh, application process with the department and if they have to go to a, a tribunal hearing and so forth. And so not only are you doing really sort of important community work with purpose, but as a junior, it's this very um, unprecedented amount of independence and fast on the ground learning that you might not get in your teams because just the nature of our our matter sometimes just means that there has to be a lot of oversight or it's a very resource dense project but you don't see that as much with pro bono and and a lot of opportunity to um hone your 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 confidence in taking calls and fielding questions and conducting interviews with clients and all the while you're doing like a very important social good there's no downside to it I, i love it it's 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 probably where i learn the most at the moment I would agree with that, Bryce. I've definitely learned um, a lot of legal skills on the pro bono matters that I've been on and like really breadth of legal skills that you don't get on your bigger corporate matters. So I've been really fortunate to be working on a few like native title matters. Um, We do quite a bit of native title work in Perth. And so that's really interesting. It's a completely unique um, area of law. And I've actually gotten to go out to Kalgoorlie a few times for some negotiations with native title owners. Those of you unaware, Kalgoorlie is about a six-hour drive northeast of Perth. Um, It's an old gold mining town. It's still an active gold mining town. But, yeah, just getting that exposure and getting to see the, the real people. I think sometimes in corporate law, Um, Some of your matters are quite large and, you know, a lot of your clients are corporations and companies. It can be really refreshing to actually do a pro bono matter where you're sitting on the other side of a table and that person that you're talking to is actually the person that's like involved in the piece of work you're doing. And so you actually get that real sense that the work you're doing is having an immediate impact on this person and like you're really helping them. Um, So it it can be incredibly rewarding, but also just develops your, your legal skills immensely because like Bryce said, you're practically given run of the matter. And as a junior, you're the one who's responsible for keeping the client up to date, like, you know, running negotiations, preparing drafts of documents. So yeah, it's great if you can get involved with it. I definitely recommend it. So if there's not a club program in Sydney, you can do it as a rotation um and you can do a grad rotation as well and then for the summer club program we also do a compulsory pro bono project 
boat run. So even if you're not rotating, you still have the chance to get involved and, and see what it's all about. And it's always real work. None of the assignments are ever sort of made up just to keep clerks occupied. Um, and then you have the chance, if you stay on, hopefully, as, you know, paralegals and graduates, you get to see that through um, to completion, which is great. Um, I guess kind of switching gears a little bit. So what do you guys see as being the role of tech and innovation in the delivery of legal services, kind of drawing on your own experiences? Great question. <laughs> um, I might start with this one and then um, Bryce and Christy, I'm sure you guys have your own um, anecdotes to add. So yeah, I was really lucky to work in the legal service innovation team with Bryce as, as a grad and we had a great time working together. I think the biggest thing, the biggest learning for me was that technology and innovation isn't going to replace people in how we work. It really just augments the way in which we deliver our legal services. And I think the easiest way to sum this up is, and this is actually touching what Bryce said earlier, lawyers bill by, you know, six minute intervals. They have the billable hour. Everyone knows that we charge by our time. And in the legal transformation team, we don't operate on that model. We operate on a very different model. But I think what we're going to see is more and more law firms and legal practice groups operating on a different model as well, where it's not a pure labor market. It's a labor plus capital market. So to kind of explain that, like at the moment, we just charge for our time and we add disbursements for like court fees or other relevant fees where they appear. But as technology becomes more integral to the way in which we deliver our work, and also clients expect us to use this technology in the way in which we deliver our work because they know it produces benefits. There's less human error. There's less lawyer time on the matter. There's more consistency across the work we produce. We're going to see the, how we price and charge for our work kind of change as well. So it's not purely just going to be for, for the billable hour, but we're moving towards a market where law firms are providing the service of giving legal advice, but they're also providing capital which is like tools technology platforms we we license some of this out to clients it, i think we're moving towards a very different market where people are not going to be replaced i think that that's like a very common fear and i totally understand where that fear comes from we're not there yet i don't think we're going to be there for the foreseeable future but we are moving towards a different model where lawyers the time of lawyers is just one element that of the service that law firms offer yeah, lawyers have always occupied like a number of number of roles for their clients, um, expected to be commercially minded and risk adverse and, and thinking about the people element of, of how a decision um, is going to impact that client's organisation. And, and, and in the same vein, now we're also expected to have competency with technology and with data and applying that to, to matters is, is no longer really novel. Like, all the large matters that I've worked on this year in TMD have had some element of um, data management and um, dealing with massive document sets and bringing clarity to that and being the sort of bridge between what a, what a client might see as a very confronting, you know, 10, 20,000 document um, data set, which is a big pain on their end because they're like, how do we get clarity out of this? And then we start bridging those gaps. And we organize that, that data and our team, our legal informatics team works routinely with the legal teams and with the clients to bring clarity around those big document heavy matters. And that's just one example of how technology is becoming just another part of the, the, the multi-pronged role that we're expected to, to fill for our clients. And 
I think as well, as Lauren said, the, the appetite is, is always increasing on the on client side for our legal services to, to be enriched or sped up. Like in some cases, a client just cares about getting something reviewed very fast for any number of reasons. And, and we have a sort of multimodal approach there where we can say, okay, well, we have a tool that does a more in-depth analysis, or we can just do a tool that will filter these documents and, and, and give you some top level insights. And it's really, yeah, it's really fun, but this also means that it's another area to keep on top of as a young lawyer. And it's, it's probably something worth mentioning in, in interviews if it comes up that you, that you have that interest, because I don't think it's as optional as it is sometimes phrased in, in the, in the media, you know, and there's a lot of separation. It's like big law and new law and tech law is sometimes put in a pigeonhole, but it's very much becoming mainstream and required. Definitely. You need, we, we need people now that are curious and people that are open to new technologies and solutions, you know, who are not techie in the sense of you don't need to know how to code and to build apps and that kind of thing, but certainly a level of tech literacy, I guess, and, you know, being adaptable and flexible and happy to experiment and, and those sorts of things. So uh, we certainly get some queries in the process around, you know, am I, is it the right thing to be studying a law degree? Am I going to be replaced by a robot? Um, you know, how is artificial intelligence having an impact on those sorts of things? And as the guys have said, the, the lawyers are definitely not going away anytime soon and you know there's still going to be that human element that you can't replace in these in these matters you know the commercial mindset the ability to negotiate uh, eq etc but um you know we will be upskilling or we are upskilling our lawyers on the sorts of qualities that we are looking for um in people you know there's more skills required now around project management and data analytics and design thinking and those sorts of things. So it's definitely evolving. I mean, we talk at GNT a little bit about this T-shaped lawyer and you've got your traditional um, legal knowledge and skills in the middle and then we sort of see this spread of other non-legal skills that are becoming increasingly important and sort of this less mm. traditional model for the lawyer that's becoming more and more important. So um, it's definitely an interesting time to see that role evolve yeah and i think the t-shaped model is a really good example because what it's trying to say is that you need to be able to have some level of insight into many roles but you don't mm -hmm. have to be an expert and you're not expected to be an expert like if we take the coding example for one that's a question that's come up in the past like oh am i going to be expected to have to code to be a lawyer in the future like absolutely not like that is that is so far from the truth um at least in in the sort of law that we're practicing but you do need to be able to know how to talk to someone who who does have those skills and to and to bridge that gap and so often the role that i see myself and other lawyers occupy is is one of a conduit between those very deep skills and then uh the request of the client and you're just translating and acting as the middleman but at the same time you're upskilling yourself as well so it's it's really beneficial mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I totally agree with what has been said. There's also, so I'm a big fan of the T-shaped lawyer model. There's also another model that comes out of the United States called the Delta model, which is kind of like similar to the T-shaped model, but quite different. And, but I think the um, interesting thing about that, and it kind of, it's, it looks at all of the different elements which are important in the, the lawyer of the present and the lawyer of the future. 
but what I really like about that model is that so it's got three sort of sections it's got like the process the practice and the people and they each occupy you know like a lawyer of today and the future has to have skills in all of these areas but I think what it really draws out is that the 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 depth of your skills in those areas changes depending on what role you occupy. And so I think I touched on Bryce's point earlier, like as, as a junior resource um, and someone who's very tech literate, he sort of occupies a space where um, he has the legal knowledge and he's that communicator with the IT and the tech people to achieve the desired outcome for the client. And as junior people coming through the profession and early career professionals, those are the types of skills that you guys will be expected to possess more and more. And perhaps, you know, if you go into an in-house role, it's kind of different as opposed to if you go into a corporate law firm role or a criminal law firm role. And so I think it's just, and this is sort of similar to the T-shaped lawyer where there's no set definition of competencies across the top of the T. It kind of changes and varies depending mm-hmm. on the role that you go into. But I think the key takeaway is that your, your legal knowledge still forms the absolute foundation of what you're doing in your day-to-day work. But the additional skills you need, it used to be limited to things like EQ and, you know, can you hold a conversation? Can you read people's body language? And that is just evolving so, so quickly. But I think as Christy mentioned earlier, I think you guys are probably in the best position for it as early career professionals because you're incredibly adaptive, open to change, and you're all incredibly fast learners. So I don't think it's something you need to be worried about. As long as you're open to it, then you'll you'll succeed. Do you think COVID is going to be this sort of tipping point for the law in terms of the way that it approaches tech and innovation now that we've all gotten very familiar with having conversations over Zoom and doing things digitally? Do you think that that's something that we're going to see in the future of the law? It's a tough, it's a tough question and a lot of it um, remains to be seen. Like if we think about it um, from how the, the sector has responded and how regulators have responded, I think that's a really um, interesting example of where things in the past have traditionally uh, lagged, like there's that legal lag with um, adapting to technologies. Well, a lot of those things have had to have had to adapt during this time, um, such as in the, in the area of um, electronic execution and so forth. Things that really we, we, we should have had clarified some time ago and they've just sort of been pushed forward. In terms of legal practice, yeah, I think it remains to be seen, at least in the short to midterm. I, I, I don't see it uh, having a small impact. I think the impact is going to be quite substantial. Mm, yeah, I think, I think that's a, probably the, the best answer. <laughs> I, I'm sure there are some people you would speak to who have really strong opinions on it and who will like, speak in absolutes and say, definitely, we're never going to go back. I think there are some elements that will change a lot, but other elements I'm just not so sure about. And I think it also... Um, requires like a really good understanding of how law firms operate from a business perspective. So, you know, even though a law firm, like as, as its whole is one company, it essentially operates as all these little um, separate business units where each partner is an owner of that firm. And then each partner has their own teams and their own lawyers. And, you know, it's that classic law firm model where partners run their team how they kind of want to like obviously we're all aligned to a common goal and common values and we all work together to achieve those but at the end of the day the way law firms are structured is that each partner is a business owner and they can run their business sort of how they want to and so I think like Bryce said it remains to be seen but I think it's also just a reflection of the fact that producing change in in a law firm model it has has its own unique challenges you can't just have one person say right this is how we're going to do everything from now on it's really that 
approach where you have to meet people where they're at and get everyone on board the bus to the same destination. And that takes a lot of time. And the things that speed up those process are like client driven forces are speeding it up. And I think internal forces such as like your staff and your employees, and then also your external forces such as a global pandemic. Um, so I think it, it will produce change, but it just depends on what areas will see that lasting change. Cause I think it just, you really have to understand how law firms operate. It, it's not just going to be like, oh, suddenly everyone's going to be working from home 24-7 because you've got individual business owners who don't want to operate in that way. And that's, that's the law firm model. That's how we work. Yeah, and I think one of the impacts brought about by um, just changing economic and financial circumstances will be that a lot more clients will be even more so cost-conscious, you know, and they're already incredibly cost-conscious uh, which is understandable, but I think that's only going to grow as a priority. And so I think it's it, it's going to bring like newfound relevance to teams um, such as Lauren's that routinely deal with how to optimize the delivery of legal services, not just how GNT delivers legal services to its clients, its legal clients, but also how the legal service innovation team helps in-house teams uh, of our clients better perform as as legal teams themselves and that's been part of our sort of consulting offering for a while and I think that's just going to become more and more relevant in the future. Yeah totally agree. Um, So Bryce and Lauren how do you think your experience with innovation has helped and complemented other aspects of your work as a lawyer so maybe the more kind of traditional commercial law elements? Yeah well I, I think that Lauren and I sort of are a good example set here because we both did the the rotation in uh, legal service innovation at the same time and both went into it with slightly different intentions like i i wanted to complement my more traditional legal skills and expose myself to that area of the firm but knowing that i i didn't want to settle in that team i wanted to um to learn as much as i could from that team and build contacts in that team and expand my network there um, and then bring that back as a as a value asset to um, PMD. Whereas Lauren can speak for her experience was a bit different. Yeah, I think that's a great answer, Bryce. Um, it kind of what it's like what Bryce said. You kind of get out of it what you want to get out of it. But I I would say, and touching on your point, Bryce, about one of the really real strengths is getting to know people in this space. So and it kind of touches on I guess a general theme, which is like your network, which is incredibly important. So even like within the firm, even in your workplace, you're constantly networking, you're constantly building relationships and developing rapport with people uh, that, you know, you can help you out down the track, you can help them out down the track. And so I think it's changed how, particularly in my role, like doing my rotation there, I wasn't sure if I could even work full time in that role from Perth. So it was kind of, it's been a long and exploratory journey since then to get to this point now. But I've kind of had exposure to so many different parts of the firm with I just would have no idea about otherwise. And I think that that's actually made when I was still working as, as a lawyer in my corporate team, it made me a better lawyer in that role because I really understood how the firm worked from a business perspective. Mm. And I think as lawyers entering the profession, this is sort of like a passion point of mine is like law is a service and law is a business. And when you go to work as a lawyer, you're in the service of giving legal advice. And that's kind of what we're taught at law school and PLT, you know, like, okay, we give the legal advice and that's it. But we kind of don't have this broader understanding that behind the scenes, there's this entire law firm, which is operating as, as a business. And there's all of these people that are employed to 
enable this structure where you can give the service of legal advice. And I think a lot of early career professionals and junior lawyers don't have a really good understanding or, or any understanding of the business side of it. And I think they would benefit if they did, because as soon as you kind of understand a lot of those other points, it kind of makes sense as to why things are done a certain way. Like if you're just working as a lawyer day after day without understanding the impact or how come you have to do it like this and not like this, it, you kind of can't capitalise on that and find efficiencies. Whereas as soon as you have that basic understanding of, okay, we work in a business, all of these systems are interconnected, these are the people that are involved in getting this one document out, you can kind of find opportunities where you're like, hang on, why am I emailing it to this person if they're just emailing it to this person? Why don't we set up a workflow where I just press like you use an automation where it just automatically goes to this person to get approved? But if you don't have that understanding of how the firm operates from business, you just you're never going to see those gaps and you're never going to come up with ideas to sort of, you know, solve those inefficiencies. So I'd say yeah, it, it makes you a better lawyer not in the sense of like your actual legal knowledge, but it makes you a better lawyer in the sense of your commercial knowledge and delivering that legal advice. And that's fantastic and really interesting that you've been able to be on both sorts of sides. So I think that's all that we have time for today, but we're so appreciative of all your insights and advice and experiences that you've spoken about with us today. Um, so thanks so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Thanks so much Thank for you. having us. Thanks for listening. And a big thanks to Bryce, Lauren and Christy from Gilbert and Tobin for chatting to us today and overcoming all the usual technical difficulties of Zoom calls. Another thanks to Gilbert and Tobin for helping make this season of Footnotes possible. Also a bit of a shout out to our stellar podcast team this year, Alison, Brandon, David, Llewellyn and both the Vivians. Keep an eye out for more episodes over these next few months and follow the Soul's Facebook page and Citations blog for more. Speak to you soon.